Scishow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as <laughs> the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the the the... The part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, (laughs) Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that, to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know. I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my basement. It was my (laughs) basement of my own home that I was renting. (laughs) Downstairs of. (laughs) If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. Welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive knowledge showcase starring some of the geniuses that make the YouTube series SciShow happen. Today, as always, I'm joined by Stefan Chen. Stefan, what's your hair care routine? Very relaxed. I don't, I, I wash it occasionally. Stefan, do you use combination shampoo, conditioner, body wash, like the three-in-one? I do, and I buy in bulk. <laughs> mm, of course you do. From my local warehouse to store. What's your tagline? Up, up, and away. Mm. Thanks. <laughs> Sam Schultz also came with us. What's your tagline? A future voice of America's favorite orange cat, Garfield. <laughs> Whoa. Sam's going for that big Dreams. Garfield money. I like it. I like that dream. I'm much more, as, as is everyone, I'm much more here for that than you being Santa Claus. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> I'd be good at being both. <laughs> yeah. And who's to say that Santa Claus isn't the voice of Garth? Santa has nothing <laughs> to do for most of the year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sari Riley is here as well. Hi, Sari. Hello. What's your tagline? Tiny bubble wrap. In the wine. In the wine? It's an old song. Yeah, Tiny Bubbles. This old song. And I'm Hank Green, and my tagline is Hank Green, mistress of hair. (laughs) (laughs) 
Every week here on Tangents, we get together to try to one-up a maze and delight each other with science facts. We're playing for glory, but we're also keeping score and awarding sandbucks from week to week. We do everything we can to stay on topic, but judging by previous conversations, we won't be great at that. So, if the rest of the team deems a tangent unworthy, we will force you to give up one of your sandbucks. So, tangent with care! Now, as always, we introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem. This week, from me. I want to be a bird! (laughs) I'm going to say it louder, because I don't know if you heard. I want to be a bird! I want to build wax wings and go to a cliff and just lean forward. I want to be a bird. Put a spinning corkscrew above me and spin it until it's blurred. I want to be a bird. Go to Kitty Hawk with my brother and just try something absurd. I want to be a bird. Design an engine that multiplies the thrust of combustion like a nerd. I want to be a bird. Sit in a rocket until mission control says lift off the final word. I want to be a bird. Yeah. The topic today Whoa. is flying machines. <laughs> that was great. We all need the snap now, I think. So the topic for today is flying machines, which I guess encompasses most of the ways we currently fly. But does it also include some of the ways we wished we could fly, but mm. turned out we couldn't? I think so. I do, yeah. yeah, I feel like that Da Vinci corkscrew flying machine thing is a flying mm. machine, even if it wouldn't work. Uh, anyway, uh, Sari, what's a flying machine? <laughs> I mean, basically that, the harder part of this to define is flight, which we argued about in an earlier episode. Oh, like, is a jump yeah. flying? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, you have to right. take that definition of flight, and then instead of imagining a human doing it or a bird, you imagine a mechanical thing doing it. Right. I feel like <sighs> flight requires something to do with air. So if like, yeah. I was on a very small planet, like really small, and I just jumped and I like reached escape velocity... I would never land, but I don't think I'd be flying. Yeah, I sort of feel like you have to get into the air and then some wing or something has to provide lift of some kind. Right. And like a sustained lift. You have to generate more lift than gravity. So the space shuttle isn't flying around up there? Not, no, it's not flying. It's just falling. Okay. It's just falling and missing <laughs> all the time. <laughs> I even think that like a rocket that's like going through the air and and like if it has no no like lift surfaces hmm. and is only like shooting itself through the air with thrust, I don't even know that that's flying. Yeah. But yeah, we get the point. And also, I don't think that we're going to figure out the etymology of flying machine because I, I think I got it. I think it comes from flying and machine. Mm-hmm. I looked up fly and machine separately. And, and fly is from the Proto-Indo-European pluk, which is an extended form pluk? of the root plu to flow. So like pluvial or pneumonia mm. all come from the mm. same root. So you're flowing through the air. You're flowing, yeah. And then machine comes from the root mag, which is to be able or have power. And mm. so that's part of mm. dismay or might, machine, mechanic, mage, magic. So all, all of those words fall into the same category as machine. Ooh. So now that we know what a flying machine is, I guess it's time for... <laughs> Where you can play at home at twitter.com slash scishowtangents. So, Sari has brought three science facts for our education and enjoyment, but only one of those facts is real. The rest of us have to figure out, either by deduction or a wild guess, which is the true fact. And if we do, we get a sandbuck. If not, then Sari gets the sandbuck. Sari, what are your three facts? Which of these weird flying machines was real? Oh, yes, okay, plain sure. Plain and simple. Number one, 
a donut-shaped aircraft that could hold over 100 people. This design allows for structural resistance to cabin pressure and more space for passengers, but after it was constructed and tested, it wasn't flown regularly or mass-produced because people feared there would be much more panic surrounding UFOs and possible attacks against these weird (laughs) donut planes. I'm confused, but we'll talk about it more in a second. Number two, a personal flying machine that looks kind of like a Segway and a snowmobile that had a baby. It's powered by a jet engine, (laughs) and you lean in the direction you want to fly, and you can fly for about 30 minutes at a top speed of around 60 miles per hour. Or number three, a flying magic carpet, which is basically a flat piece of light but sturdy padding with opposite rotating fans beneath it to generate thrust and a control panel to steer. Test designs carried as many as two people that were sitting or lying down prone, sort of like planking. And the plans were to scale up to create large chains of these for commuting over land like trains or water. But people had trouble balancing and they were prone to accidents, so development ceased. Yeah, it seems very dangerous. That seems like a bad idea. A flexible thing (laughs) above two propeller blades doesn't seem great. (laughs) Yeah, I'm confused about how I don't immediately fall into the giant weed whacker, but... (laughs) But we'll start at the beginning here. So we've got the donut-shaped aircraft that could hold over 100 people. We've got a personal flying machine that looks like a Segway snowmobile that can go 30, 60 miles an hour for 30 minutes. Or we've got a flying magic carpet that's just two giant person shredders <laughs> inside of some kind of flat thing that you can lay down on and, and uh, move around with. So we're going to start with this donut. Sari, what's the what's the lift surface yeah. on this boy? Is it like a whole donut or is it like a Boston cream donut? What are we it's talking like, about? It's like a donut with a <laughs> hole in it, but there are wings that stick out that make it a little bit wider. Why is there a hole in the middle? According to the patent, it says... So it can withstand the loads induced by the cabin pressurization. So something about the hole in the middle of this plane, Ah. engineering-wise, in this patent says that it helps physics. A circle is a very strong shape. Yes, and so is a toroid. (laughs) So when you say that these things are real... What do you mean? I mean that someone built it. So like the story in in a hole is real. These all are based on patents, to be clear. So okay. I can pull oh, up patent okay. specs for all of these machines. They just may or may <laughs> mm, not be gotcha. for this machine. So and then we've got our personal flying machine. Is 60 miles an hour fast enough to to generate lift? Well, it's powered by a jet engine. It feels more like a jet pack, but but not like a backpack shape. It's a it's a Segway shape. Yeah, and it feels like if it's powered, like if it's if I stand on it and it's got a jet engine, I feel like it's got to go faster than sixty miles an hour. Well, I know that there were there were these platforms with the huge helicopter blades on the bottom of them that the military mm-hmm. was testing. I don't know anything about a jet engine one though. But also, they had these in Johnny Quest, so it could just be. <laughs> but I don't think Sarah's ever seen an episode of Johnny Quest. In I've seen an episode no. of Johnny Quest. They showed it on whatever Boomerang, I think, that oh, showed yeah. Scooby Doo and other. Old sure. cartoons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, Sari, I do need to, to ask, where does a person sit on this flying magic carpet? So it's like, if you imagine a carpet, but like <laughs> made of metal instead with fans <laughs> underneath it. So there's a, there's a sheet of metal separating okay. the person and the fans. It's not flexible. It's not flexible in, it can like 
turn. And if you really set it off balance, it'll flip, but it's not like a bendy magic carpet. Right, right. Okay. But you could put a carpet on the metal surface for comfort. And that's basically what they did. They like created or used a synthetic material to line the metal surface to make it more like a passenger car that you'd want to sit on. But no walls. (laughs) Yeah. No walls. No. A completely flat surface that you either have to sit or stand. No one stood in the patents. But I guess you could sit, stand, lay down. And they mostly tested it with sitting and laying down. Why not put a chair and some walls and (laughs) a ceiling? All things that would make it Less likely that I would fall off and have it land on me. There's less well, materials. Yeah, I guess I guess weight is important. I would hope there was like a seatbelt or something. Uh, no, because you got to be able to jump off of it really easily when you get to where you're needed militarily, mm. I assume. <laughs> or do they just want these things to be like people movers? It was military developed, but part of it, uh, the discussion around this invention was like, uh, commuting from backyard to office may be a possibility. So <laughs> oh, either nice. a personal Hell flying yeah. device or a mass transit flying oh, device. Ugh, I think most people in the world shouldn't be flying, probably. Yeah, I think we're all okay just walking true. around. Sam doesn't trust us. At some point, everyone thought flying was the future, though. Hover cars yeah. and pneumatic yeah. tubes and things like that. <laughs> Stefan, you go first. Uh, uh, I'll say the personal flying machine, seg- the Segway personal flying machine. That one does sound the least fake, which makes me think it's fake. This donut is is really appealing to me, but I don't think that everybody would be afraid about panic from UFOs. I mean, people did seem to be panicked about UFOs. Yeah. I just don't know true. how this thing gets off the ground. Oh, uh, no, I'm not worried about that. <laughs> Oh, okay. I'm not worried about that. Okay. I, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go with the fucking donut. I'm in. <laughs> I'm gonna go with the snowmobile Segway because I'm like 99% sure that I read an article. Oh. About it. Fuck! <laughs> Fuck! Well, Sam, you did read an article about Ooh. it. No! <laughs> and I saw some really cool 80s guys with big mustaches flying. It. <laughs> <laughs> they all have very good pictures. I'm sad uh-huh. I'm not in the same room as you because I could show them but they're all in the show notes slash you can google them it's called the williams x jet after the company i think it's an aerospace company called williams that worked on it and it's like a personal compartment with a jet engine on the bottom it looks not so much like a snowmobile as like a trash can with skids on it (laughs) It, it looks like I'm about to ride the Matterhorn at Disneyland or something. Oh, yeah, it really does. <laughs> yeah, it looks like the kind of thing that a lot of, like, uh, dudes in country clubs would be crashing and exploding if yeah. they were made mass-produced. Definitely. Yeah, definitely, like, an eccentric, rich person kind of invention. But it was developed as a small, single-person, lightweight, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. So, think... Mm-hmm. You just like launch straight up and then you can start leaning and then you you land straight down kind of like a like a drone. So is the main way that you decide where the thrust is pointed by leaning your body weight? Yes. Because that sounds terrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, a little too far. Yeah. I guess I'm going to die now. <laughs> now we're going I guess I'll land, with, I'll land on my head with this thing on top of me. <laughs> so the way that this thing works is basically a jetpack that instead of strapping on your back... The, the jet engine is between your legs. <laughs> and I'm watching a video of it right now, and it looks awesome. <laughs> it looks awesome. It looks so, so fun. I absolutely, like, now with, like, computers, 
I feel like we could make this thing a reality. Like I think I feel like this is way more doable now than it was when it was made. I'm gonna go ahead and say, by the time I'm dead, <laughs> this thing's gonna be a thing, and it will have killed you, and that's why you'll be dead. <laughs> I think that a lot of people are on the same page as you, Hank, because a lot of writing I found about it on the internet was a bunch of people being like, why doesn't this exist? And the only answer anyone can give is that like it was functional. It was functional mm-hmm. to the point that they could make a video of someone flying it around. There was just, it was slightly too expensive and not useful enough for a military purpose to be mass produced. And no rich billionaire, whatever, looked at it and was like, I want one for all me and all my friends. So you can be the, the rich person, Hank who gets mm-hmm. one, brings it to a country club, makes everyone jealous. And then explodes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> to make myself feel better about me, I looked up this donut plane and it looks great. Mm-hmm. And I be- and like it totally should exist. <laughs> yeah. So there's a there's a donut plane designed by Airbus Operations that was a patent filed with the European Patent Office in 2014, I believe. As far as I know, no one's made a donut plane, and I have no idea how the physics of it work. It's really cute, though. <sighs> yeah, it is. I mean, I, I think it's just like the, the whole thing functions as a flying wing, and the like central hole that is just ignored by airflow. And and I guess the the idea of the donut is just like this is the pressurized area of the craft. The problem is that like it, it appears to not have any windows. That was a problem listed too. Also, how to get people on and off of the donut, like where to put the <laughs> oh, door. That's a, that's a great point. I have the, yeah, the door in the patent is on the inside. So you like mm-hmm. drive a you have to like lift a staircase up into it. What's up with the magic carpet? So in the f- 1950s, the US Navy was working on what they called a flying pie pan. I found a popular science article from the 1955 that has pictures of it. So you might be able to find it as well. But it's just like this big circular disc. And in these pictures, the man has a cage around him and he's also attached to a wire above in case it it drops. But I think that's what it is. It's like basically an unprotected platform that they just wanted you to step onto. Also lean to control. So no sort mm-hmm, of control mm-hmm. pad or anything like that. Not Ugh. Not comfortable. And they warned that if an engine went out, it would drop like a brick. So yeah. it seemed extremely dangerous. <laughs> and they did make one of these? Yeah, and they had at least one Navy man fly around on it while strapped to something above him. And also, wow. it seems like, held on <laughs> by a lot of ropes with people around him. So they really didn't trust it. I think you could put all the ropes you wanted to, and it wouldn't really make that much of a difference, probably. <laughs> yeah. So they made it far enough to be like, let's get a man on here. <laughs> and have them hover for a bit before realizing, like, this is a bad idea. We should not do it anymore. (laughs) All right. Next up, we're going to take a short break. Then it'll be time for the Fact Off. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscription services you had, you think you could name them all? And before you just start naming streaming apps, remember that basically everything has a subscription these days. Video games, dating apps, food delivery apps. It's a subscription service world. We're just living in it. And with all of these subscriptions, it can feel like money is just flying out of your account. And that, frankly, sucks. But Rocket Money can help. 
Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money can help you negotiate to lower some bills for you by up to 20%. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in total canceled subscriptions. Escape from the planet of the subscription services and stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary-defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks, and we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850+, plus, their best-selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not <laughs> what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if, like, a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 plus Manuka honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's manukora.com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Hello, welcome back, everybody. Sandbuck totals. We are all tied at one. That never happens. <laughs> Problem is, Sari and I have no other opportunities to get points because it is time for the fact off. Stefan and Sam have each brought science facts to present to Sari and I in an attempt to blow our minds. We can award a Sandbuck to the fact that we like the most, and we will decide who goes first. With this trivia question, commercial aircraft typically fly within a narrow range of altitudes. What altitude is the upper limit of the sweet spot of flying? 
they say the number when you're there and they're like, we're cruising now at this, this, at this altitude. And you just you just don't have that number in your I head? I think I do, but I want Stefan to say it first. Oh, I'm, I'm going to guess 32,000 feet. Okay, I'm going to guess 37,000 feet. It is 42,000 oh, feet. That's too high. It's as high as they can go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the like functionally the same for you, right? I guess. <laughs> now that I know, it's scary, though. All right, so Sam, that means you get to choose who goes first. Oh, God, I guess I'll go first. On October 4th, 1863, in Paris, France, celebrity bohemian artist Nadar took flight in what was, at the time, the largest hot air balloon ever built. The balloon, called Le Giant, or the giant, I guess, in French. <laughs> yeah, probably. 200 feet tall and was made of 12 miles of silk that Nadar mm. claimed had been sewn by 200 women working for a solid month. But he said a lot of things, so people aren't sure if that's true. <laughs> the balloon's wicker basket was two stories tall and included a billiard table, a dining room, a bathroom, and a dark room. Whoa. And the dark room was there because Nadar was the world's first aerial photographer. Oh. So for the previous years before the, the balloon actually launched, Nadar had been working on combining his career as a world-famous portrait photographer who was one of the first of his trade to treat photographs of people as works of art uh, with his hobby of ballooning. So after a lot of trial and error, including problems such as having to develop his plates while they were still in the air and the fact that hydrogen gas ruined the plates on exposure, he ended up with a super stable gas-proof balloon darkroom that in 1658 he used to take the first aerial photos that were over Paris. So why did he want to take aerial photos in the first place? It was probably mostly for fame and fortune because he was like a larger-than-life personality who was super famous in Paris for being larger-than-life, uh, and he had a lot of over-the-top self-promotion going on in his career. But another more noble reason was that Nadar was a futurist, and he and his close friend Jules Verne were sure that human flight was the future, and Nadar in particular thought it was the next step in map-making, surveying, and military operations. Mm. So, unfortunately for them, the best that anybody had to work with in the 1860s was hot air balloons, which everybody knew were too dangerous for people to use, like, regularly. Because there was no way to steer them at all, and any stray mm -hmm. wind could like send you off course at best, or send you plummeting to your death at worst. So he and Jules Verne started a club slash like advocacy group called the Society for the Encouragement of Aerial Locomotion by means of heavier than air machines, and the club was formed with the the goal of designing and promoting safer aircraft of the future, which brings us back to Lejeune, which was in their weird bohemian minds, a way to promote the promise of future human flight, expose the dangers of ballooning and make money for the club all at the same time because they would charge people to look at it and to fly up in the air in it. Even though like the point is that it's dangerous. Well, yeah. So then it only did one of those three goals really well. And that was be dangerous because on a second flight, <laughs> the giant was taken by a gale uh, and crash landed and then bounced over the French countryside for half an hour. What? Nobody died, but everybody got smashed up really good. Oh, so there were people inside oh while that was happening? Yeah, he would bring 13 people at a time with him up in this balloon oh. uh, and take pictures the, and serve the, them the, dinner no, and he, stuff. You can't, you can't say he would do that when he did it twice. No, no. Well, my story's <laughs> not over. He kept doing okay. it. So after he did <laughs> okay. it, he wrote a manifesto called The Right to Flight uh, in which he coined the term dirigible, which means steerable or directable. And the manifesto mm -hmm. was about like, we can't use balloons anymore because we're all going to get killed <laughs> if we keep using balloons. Uh, and Victor Hugo, who wrote Les Miserables, I think, 
I think yeah. that's right, replied to the manifesto with an open letter that called Nadar a prophet and a hero. So then he didn't stop flying Lejeune after that, and he did like hundreds of more flights with it. A semi-sad fact is that none of his photos from the 1858 photo shoot exist anymore. So that was the first ones ever. So the actual earliest surviving aerial photos are called Boston as the eagle and wild goose see it. And they were taken by James Wallace Black over Boston in 1860. Very good. I love it. He also invented airmail. Did he invent (laughs) airmail? Did he drop things from his balloon? He said, we should use balloons. And everybody went, oh, okay, <laughs> we will. And they did. And but, they it can't, it, but they're unsteerable. How do you deliver well, mail when you don't know which direction they are going to go? They could only send it the direction they like meant for it to go, and then they couldn't get it back. I don't, I don't okay. really know why. Because <laughs> that's know. the way the wind blows in France, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Stefan, what do you got? When I think about drone delivery systems, I think about like ordering a giant pack of ramen noodles or something and getting that delivered straight to my door in 30 minutes or less. Okay. Uh, But it turns out there might be another area where utilizing drones for transport could be super useful, and that's in human organ transplants. One of the news reports that I was reading said that about 25% of organs don't make it to the destination in time. A kidney can last about 30 hours. But like a heart or lungs only lasts up to maybe six hours. But the fresher it is, the better. So if you end up with a right. heart, you have to like figure out right away, like, are there any heart transplant recipients within a couple hours? Um, and so the distance that these things can travel is pretty limited. And the way that they do it right now, it's pretty inefficient because you often have to book like a charter flight or sometimes they even use commercial flights. And then you have to book your ground transportation to actually get it from the airport to the hospital. And there's multiple handoffs. So it's just hard to get things to where they need to be. But if you replace this whole system with like an automated unmanned drone or other aircraft, you can save a lot of time and you could potentially fly straight to the hospital and land on the roof. So in mid-2019, the University of Maryland was the first to use a drone to deliver a kidney that was then transplanted into a patient. And this team had designed their own custom drone because it's obviously complicated to transport an organ, like you have to keep it at the right temperature and, and all that. But they also were conscious of like public perception of like drones and like lack of trust in drones. So they were like, we need to make this super reliable so we can save lives, but also so we can build trust with the public. The drone that they developed has like redundant propellers, motors, batteries, circuits. And if all of it fails, there's a parachute that will catch it on the way down. And then it also has the systems to maintain the temperature of the organ, the barometric pressure inside the container, and it controls the vibrations of the craft. And then it's constantly communicating with ground systems so they can track it the whole way. But I guess in Ohio, they're they're trying to create like statewide air corridors that they can use specifically for this. So they can use a combination of autonomous planes and drones to like make it easy to distribute organs throughout the state really quickly. Do you know what the range of this uh, this beefy extra souped up drone is? Uh, I don't know. But I think that the drones specifically are more short range. And then it's like handing off to autonomous planes and like small craft that fly the longer distances. But the idea is that you could potentially like fly across the country if you had a nationwide system. It's like the Pony Express of drones. The Drony Express. (laughs) The drone. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, it is time to decide who our winner is. Sari, are you ready to vote for the fact that you like the most? Yes. Three, two, one. Sam. Sam. Oh. All right, it's time to ask the science couch. We've got a science question for our uh, virtual couch of finely honed scientific minds. It's from at Andy Kishu, who asks, why is Santos Dumont not recognized as the inventor of airplanes? My completely uninformed perspective on this is that he's not American. <laughs> yeah, that was my first instinct, too. And I think it is a combination of nationalist interests... So uh, mm-hmm. Alberto Santos Dumont was Brazilian and he's apparently in Brazil. He's taught as instead mm-hmm. of the Wright brothers as the main pioneer of flight. Mm. But as is with many stories in the history of science, it's complicated. And it wasn't just mm-hmm. one person forging ahead yeah. and coming up with a genius invention. He made like a pretty hefty contribution to powered flight. There's a difference in timing and there's a difference in technicality that I feel like add up to the answer to this question. So the Wright brothers' Kitty Hawk flight was in 1903. The condition that they may or may not have met is that the machine has to take off by its own means with a man on board because the Wright brothers used something called a launching rail to help their plane take off, possibly because of the windy conditions in Kitty Hawk. It seems like they didn't use it all the time, but some of the time, and it's kind of like a Mm -hmm. catapult that helps the plane with the initial acceleration and taking off the ground, to my understanding. Yeah, it's like a a tower with a weight, and the weight goes down, and it pulls the the thing forward. Mm -hmm. So there's like a group of people who are looking at aviation history and being like, the Wright brothers cheated, they don't count. So where Alberto Santos Dumont comes in is he won a competition in France in 1906 with a winged aircraft that flew 200 feet that took off by its own Mm -hmm. means. So no sort of launching catapult or something like that. And Mm -hmm. the, the France Aeronautics Organization, the Federation Aeronautique International, that was half French, half English. Uh, like established a bunch of the standards and only started recording results for the first aircraft in around 1906. So like they didn't even record the Wright brothers' attempt. And it was still somewhat disputed at the time by scientists. Like, were there enough people observing it? What does the launching rail count? And things like that. So I don't know. It's just like very wishy-washy. People are very pro Wright Brothers or very pro Santos Dumont, mm-hmm. and really they they all did a lot for airplanes. Good yeah. job, everyone. No one does anything alone. Uh, we need all kinds of eccentric weirdos <laughs> to move forward. If you want to ask the Science Couch, you can follow us on Twitter at SciShow Tangents, where we'll tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week. Thank you to at Sneffin, at Little Grayfish, and everybody else who tweeted us your questions this episode. Final Sandbox scores. Sari, Hank, and Stefan are tied with one. Sam jumping up with three points. Wow. Yeah, you did. And I'm coming for you, Stefan. I am 
irredeemably <laughs> in behind. If you like this show and you want to help us out, it's really easy to do that. First, you can leave us a review wherever you listen. That helps us know what you like about the show and apparently does something to some algorithm somewhere. Second, tweet out your favorite moment from this episode. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell, tell people, people about, about us. us. Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. I've been Stefan Chin. And I've been Sam Schultz. SciShow Tangents is a co-production of Complexly and the wonderful team at WNYC Studios. It was created by all of us and produced by Caitlin Hoffmeister and Sam Schultz, who also edits a lot of these episodes along with Haruka Matsushima. Our editorial assistant is Taboki Chakravarti and our sound design is by Joseph Tuna Medish, and we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you, and remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. In 2015, a British Airways flight was about 30 minutes into its journey from Heathrow to Dubai when it turned around because of, quote, liquid fecal excrement. Mm. This wasn't poop all over the airplane or anything. It was just a particularly stinky poop in one of the airplane toilets, which the airline decided was a health and safety and comfort problem because of the way that the air is recirculated. So they turned it back around, stuck everyone in a hotel, and launched them the next day. Did they try to deduce who did it or did they just let it lie? Yeah, did they arrest the person? I think they just let it lie. (laughs) Did they arrest that man? Arrest him. I'm tired of this motherfucker. Poop on this motherfucking plane. <laughs>